Hello and welcome to The Spectator's Books Podcast. I'm Sam Leith, the literary editor of The Spectator, and this week I'm very pleased to be joined by Cass Sunstein, who's a professor of law who's moved out from law into kind of areas of public policy. He's best known in this country and indeed around the world for his work on the book Nudge and on how behavioural psychology can influence public policy interventions. Cass, your new book is called How Change Happens. Big and forbidding title. Can I ask what's what's the sort of central idea of the book? I think the big idea, at least what got me motivated to focus on uh, a lot of pages, is that when social norms start to change, two things happen. One is people feel unleashed and they can end up saying something they kept private. And once they hear other people saying things they'd kept private, then you can see a civil rights movement, you can see fascism in the 1930s, you can see feminism, you can see Brexit, you can see all sorts of unanticipated things. So the phenomenon of unleashing uh, previously hidden thoughts inside people's heads is, I think, an entry point into understanding a lot of puzzles, even cultural puzzles, when music gets really popular or people start liking some kind of dance or clothing. And the other thing, which is kind of a sibling idea, is that sometimes when norms change, it's not like people get unleashed. It's like preferences or beliefs change in fundamental ways. So people start thinking, oh, I care about the environment, or oh, I care about some old tradition that they'd never even heard of before. And that generation of new beliefs and values is almost as interesting as unleashing. So it's not simply that there are kind of, if you like, innate predilections people have that are suddenly allowed to be expressed when social conditions change, but you're, you're making allowance for the socially constructed nature of some of people's beliefs and passions as well. Completely. And one example, I think, is cigarette smoking, where a lot of people now can't stand being around smokers. And it's not as if most of them hated smokers in a time when smoking was less sanctioned socially meaning sanctioned in the sense of punished socially, is that they have developed offense at smoking. And whether that's good or bad, let's just bracket that. It's really interesting that people see smoking or smell smoke and think, oh my God, that's gross. And they didn't think that before. And that's not about unleashing. Well, is that to do with, in in both cases, what, what you might call a kind of herd behavior in a crude way, that we do take our cues from those around us? Completely, that you get social signals from what you think are the beliefs of others, and sometimes what you think are the beliefs of others aren't really, it's just what they're displaying publicly, or they may be really the beliefs of others, but they have very uh, fragile foundations. That is, people may believe something just because they think other people believe it, and uh, they don't really believe it particularly themselves. It might be a view about what's ethical, or it might be a view about what politics is good or, or politics. And so much of what we believe, and I think this is built into the human condition and not by any means a bad thing, is just based on what other trusted people believe. And, and that can be uh, an avenue for things to change in a hurry. There's a kind of fascinating and eye-opening example quite early in the book where you talk about the position of women whether they should be allowed to work or not. And I think it's Saudi Arabia, isn't it, is the example of you. Can you talk, talk yeah. a little bit about that finding? It's, I think it's stunning and deeply revealing research where what was done was that young men in Saudi Arabia, by custom, 
get to decide whether their wives work. And by custom, young men are attentive to what other young men think. And young men in Saudi Arabia, it turns out overwhelmingly, are fine if their wives work. They seem to like it, maybe because it means they'll get more money, maybe because it means a good status or something, but they're fine with it. At the same time, young men in Saudi Arabia think that other young men in Saudi Arabia don't want their wives working. And that belief of what most young men think means that most young men think, wife, you shouldn't work. And that has power in Saudi Arabia. But once young men, and here's the kicker, once young men in Saudi Arabia are informed that most people like them actually think it's fine for their wives to work, they think, oh, now I can say that. I can say to my wife, go work. And once they are told what the norm actually is, the private belief actually is that wives working in the labor force is fine, then we see a big spike in, in work applications by Saudi women with the eventual result that a lot of women in Saudi Arabia are working outside the home. Yeah. You also talk about, I mean, which seems to be quite a kind of important driver in this, the way that change happens quite rapidly, what I think mathematicians call you know, cascade effects, that you're getting things change not gradually as we're sort of taught to believe in history, but you know, all at once. Why does that, how does that operate? Okay, well, let's think for the most dramatic example about revolutions. The Russian Revolution, Lenin had no idea what would happen. And if anyone should know, it was Lenin. He was kind of the principal architect, and he just didn't, didn't imagine. Tocqueville wrote that the French Revolution, no one anticipated. And that's strong words from maybe the greatest sociologist ever, Tocqueville. The Iranian Revolution of 1979, the Iranians didn't anticipate it. And the Arab Spring, I was in the U.S. government at the time, and we were taken by surprise by the Arab Spring. And in the U.K., the analysts were also taken by surprise. These are people are really good. And I think it's not that the French and the Iranians and the Americans and the British and the Russians were dumb. It's that we often don't know what's secretly in people's heads. And we often don't know uh, what kind of thresholds they have for, in these cases, rebelling. And we don't know who's going to see who at what time in a day, and that social interaction can produce uh, a fire in in social terms, and things can go whoosh socially when people see other people, and then the, the previously hidden desire in Russia, in the, in you know Tunisia, in uh, Iran, or in France can explode. Now, revolutions are the most dramatic and extreme example, but we can think of little cases like littering. Or what uh, broken windows theory of policing. Bro- broken windows theory, where criminality can be squelched in a surprisingly short time as a result of changes in social norms. And some politicians have seen that. Some people in the private sector have seen that, where something involving uh, dietary choices, organic. Who would have thought at year X that organic would become a very familiar term. And whether this is wonderful or not is is beside the point. It's that these things, these small things can happen in a hurry. And of course, there are things that aren't as, you know, massive as the Russian Revolution or the French Revolution that are big political movements all over the world that some of which were in the midst of seeing that nobody anticipated. You draw this 
useful and suggestive distinction between underlying behaviours or ideas that are ordinarily suppressed by social norms and unleashed by their, their change and the sort of you know, behaviours that are constructed by or encouraged by social norms. Or, I mean, is there any good work on what sorts of things fall into these categories? I, you know, one would think that for the most part, sexuality, say, would be something that would be suppressed by a social norm, but would be essentially innate to a certain extent in there. Do you, I mean, is, can you draw easy distinctions yeah. between areas of life in which these things operate? It's a fantastic question. So offhand, the empirical work that we have suggests that if it's something that directly relates to people's days and experiences, I think sexuality is a good example, then the suppression of what people actually think is likely to be really important because it's their own days and experiences. Political correctness, let's say in some forms as a squelcher of conservative thought, that is real and, in my view, terrible. And it is, in this respect, part of the internal experience of like a day or a month. Uh, So there's that. If there's something that is less familiarly connected with experience, but more is about a belief, like whether some political candidate is good or bad, or some political party is good or bad, or some uh, social movement, It, it might involve the movement for racial equality, where let's stipulate a lot of people who have one or another view of that. It isn't part of their daily experience, and they don't particularly have a view, but they can be moved to have a strong view. And I'm saying on some disputed issue, maybe it's affirmative action or something, something like animal welfare, where it, it you know, unless you're uh, a dog or a horse and they don't vote, you're not going to be affected directly that much. But you may form a strong conviction that this is an important thing or that this is a silly and dangerous thing based on what you see other people saying. And there, it wouldn't be about unleashing, it would be about forming. Yeah. An obvious spoon to, at least in, in the unleashing department, to change, to the changing of norms, would be transparency, increased transparency, the idea that you would actually, rather than supposing what other people think or other people do or other people experience, that you would know directly because there would be a complete conversation, which is one of the arguments, I guess, for freedom of speech and in the world of ideas, frictionless markets. But has the sort of digital transparency we've got, in a way, the fact that you know we, we can find like-minded people you know, everybody, every sexuality is catered for online, every, you know, ideological bolt hole is catered for online. Does that make norms, if you like, more honest? Or does it rather produce another problem in the form of this kind of cyber balkanization? Because you talk a lot also about what you call group polarization. Which yes. Is, yeah. Okay, so let's go at it through that. It's a very part. big question. Yeah, let's, let's go at it through that direction. So thus far, we've been focusing on unleashing of hidden preferences and beliefs and also of transformation. There's also a phenomenon where like-minded people, if they talk with each other, uh, they typically end up more confident, more unified, and more extreme. So there's a ton of data on that. On climate change, if there are people who tend to be worried about climate change and they talk to each other, they might well be panicked about climate change after they talk to each other and completely unified on that. There are people who aren't much worried about climate change but a little concerned. If they talk to each other, they might think that climate change is a non-problem, a hoax. And a lot of social divisions we observe are that 
produced by people talking or listening mostly to like-minded others. Your point, I think, is very powerful that on social media, the capacity to find like-minded others and basically to live with them is greater than at any point in human history. I mean, if you lived in a little town, you would live with people who are in some sense like-minded, but they'd be limited in numbers, and the very exotic views might not be discoverable. Here, they're completely discoverable. Yes, in a comedy show, we had the, I'm the only gay in the village, a character yeah. would say, you know, it's a sort of small sample size. Yeah, so I go, there's, so there's only one gay person in the world, and it's yeah. me. It must be very unusual. There must be no one like that. Me, I'm the only one. So that would be with respect to sexual orientation or with respect to some view of any kind, it would be demoralizing in a way that could be bad but could be good because it could make crazy views atrophy. But with social media, crazy views can find a lot of friends, and then you can have the group polarization machinery, which has mostly been discovered just by having in real real space people talking to one another. It can happen online, and we know from the data that the greater unification, the greater confidence, and the greater extremism uh, happens online as well as in real space. So that's completely right. Uh, the other point, which is a kind of sibling point, is also right, which is that if people are on social media and paying a lot of attention, a view that they uh, would be quiet about because they thought there was a social norm against it might be invited by the presence of people who are willing to say that's what they think. So that exotic views that are silenced by social norms might be unsilenced by the sheer near infinity not quite infinity, but near infinity of views that you can find online. Now, it's complicated because even though online you can find a whole lot of things that can free up people to say things, sometimes for better, sometimes not, there's also a censorship machinery online so that if you say, I tend to think this, it may be that the negative responses will be so fierce and numerous that you stop saying what you think or the people who would be tempted to say that will be uh, instructed that the fierce response is very likely. And it probably depends on what kinds of constructed communities people end up in online, either through serendipity, their Facebook page might have some serendipity in it, or through their own voluntary choices. Well, I'm curious as to what you think the, the consequences of that are for a democratic conversation. I mean, I, I don't think you, I didn't notice you addressing extensively the, the idea of the Overton window in your book, but it's, you know, that idea that there is a set of political parameters that are normal or sort of sayable. But it seems to be implied in a lot of what you describe about norms and, and what people are prepared to put their names to in public. But that concept, you know, kind of applies or applied to the idea of a sort of single polity, a single conversation you know, which was originally how I, I guess we'd have thought of the democratic process being designed to manage. And it's a situation we've got with digital media now that we have, rather than a single Overton window and a single conversation in which, say, you don't get that group polarisation because you have both both ends, we have multiple miniature Overton windows or little mansion yes, full of Overton windows. <laughs> completely. And here's some of the challenges introduced you may have groups of like-minded people forming communities of belief that are 
not easily put in contact with other people in other communities of belief, even though they live within a kilometer. And that's not so good if people's judgments of facts and value are diverging through the simple fact of uh, what are the most frequent encounters online, we're saying. That, that's a problem. So a challenge for democratic societies is to create spaces where communities, let's say, of self-segregated types are uh, accompanied by public spaces in which the twain shall meet and in which diverse views are put in contact with each other. John Stuart Mill had an amazing passage, and I believe he wrote before the existence of the Internet, where he said the primary source of progress really is putting people in contact with different from themselves and with modes of, of thought and action other than those with which they are familiar. And he said that's the, the primary source of progress. And uh, that is kind of eerily more relevant now than it was when Mill wrote. Uh, Facebook, by the way, is, you know, for all the uh, legitimate controversies, basically Facebook's on top of this, where in 2016 they were enthusiastically saying people can just find their own thing on Facebook. That's what the news feed for. So you find what you're interested in. They're not talking in those terms anymore, and they're concerned publicly about the news feed being a place that creates exactly what you describe, and the news feed is being reconstructed in ways that allow people to see diverse views more likely through the algorithm and in which the risk of self-segregation in political or cultural terms is, is reduced. But do you think this problem is solvable by a tweak to the Facebook? I mean, maybe that's a, that's, that's no, a cheap shot. That's hasn't. a cheap no. shot. But, but you know, is there a way of creating you know, a public space where this sort of you know million encounter with the other can take place, do you think, or is it going to be like trying to unstir the jam from Samalina? I mean, you know, we do meet opposing views in cyberspace, but very often it's it's almost as a kind of way of galvanising the in group with the backfire effect. You know, you're seeing something you're going, look at what this gets, uh, you know, completely death to them. Yeah. So, I mean, how do you think we create a space like uh, that? A little bit that's rooted in my own experience in Washington. I worked in our government for a number of years. And two things, one which most people don't find congenial, but I'm going to say it anyway, which is that good governments every day, and it may never end up in the newspaper, have these people, and we'll give them a name in a moment, but who uh, whose political views who knows who cares but they're trying to do such things as reduce accidents on the highway make sure the food is safe help reduce occupational injuries and uh, reduce let's say the most uncontroversially unacceptable forms of discrimination that's what they're doing every day and uh, they may be left of center they might be right of center but if they're thinking when they do these things I'm left of center I'm right of center they're really not doing their job and I'm going to name them now the name is technocrats and I saw them in the U.S. government. I've worked with some of them in the U.K. And they are either above or below the noise of polarization that we're talking about. Now, the most fundamental issues of all, fairly, they are not 
in charge of. They shouldn't be. You know, something that is fundamental to the future of a country is not for technocrats. But many things that government is necessary for, they are basically doing, and it doesn't matter what the political party is. So that's one direction. The other direction, which I saw in Washington, which is more directly responsive to your question, is that I found, and I worked for a Democratic administration, I worked for President Obama, that many of my best colleagues in our government were Republicans who had no enthusiasm for President Obama. And that's because they knew things I didn't know, they had values I didn't necessarily have, and they offered perspectives from which I could learn. And so I saw all the time that if politicians certainly are humble, they can think, you know, I'm from this party, but that's a problem. There's there's something that the other party's going to know that I kind of need to. Maybe a fact, it may be a perspective of the citizens, maybe a value. You know, the word humble is a small word, but it can change policy and, and make things work in ways that otherwise would fall, fall apart. So Learned Hand, an American judge with an extremely absurd name, Learned Hand, uh, did he so, have, so, his, his parents cruel? Yes, yeah, so perhaps it was 18th century Puritan. <laughs> <laughs> or maybe, the, maybe their last name was Jones, and they yeah. decided to get their Learned Hand. He said, the spirit of liberty is that spirit which is not too sure that it is right. He said that during World War II. And what's kind of perfect about that is not too sure. He didn't say not sure, and that would be too tentative, yes. Not too sure that it is right. And in well-functioning governments, even when there's the phenomena we're describing, the kind of polarization, there's a voice in leaders' heads and in citizens' heads thinking, I think I'm right, probably. Yeah. But, I mean, that's that's quite high up the chain of command, isn't it? I mean, yeah. if you're... One of the things you talk about extensively, but you go back to this idea of nudging and how you, I mean, in a way, this is what technocrats are doing, a lot of them, of producing optimal outcomes by what you call choice architecture, by framing things in such a way that people make the right choices. So it's sometimes called liberal or libertarian paternalism, that like you, you let people choose, but you encourage them to choose in the right direction. Has your idea of what nudging is, how it works where it works changed substantially since you first started using this sort of behavioral psychology in public policy? In a significant way, yes. So one thing that Richard Thaler and I didn't have when we did the book about 10 years ago was the idea of a GPS device foremost in our minds. And as I worked in government and occasionally with governments outside my own, I've seen that if you think of government as often providing the equivalent of a GPS device, it can anchor policy, meaning you're going to respect people's choices of where they want to go, but you're going to make it easier for them to get there by giving them a path. Now, it may be that the way to give them a path is to give them information about uh, health risks associated with things. Or it may be that the way to give them a path is to have automatic or easy enrollment in certain programs that would help them. The GPS device metaphor, I think, avoids some of the risks of manipulation and of paternalism in a bad sense that you might run into if you didn't have that metaphor foremost. There's a second. It's a metaphor that's being asked to do a lot of work, isn't it? Because you're 
description, at least in this book, of what nudging is, is pretty broad. It's from things like, you know, calorie readings on, on supermarket shelves to people automatically opting in or automatically opting out of something to framing something as 90% fat. And that, you know, it, it moves from the whole realm of public information to something that would look a bit like what Noam Chomsky in a more hostile way is called manufacturing consent. Well, I, I'm not a big fan of Noam Chomsky, so uh, uh, so if he would call it that, then I'm not for it. Right. <laughs> I rescind, I retract. So no, if there's anything that's manufacturing consent, there would be at least eight reasons to be against it. You're completely right that the idea of a GPS device is doing a lot of work, and maybe it's not able to do all the work, but let me give it a give it a try. If there's something like information about the risks or the or the content of food, say, or the risks associated with drug use, that it really is like a GPS. It, it tells you what to do if you want to get where you want to go, where it might be to get over a stomach virus or to deal with, you know, depression. Then there there are things that you can do, but you get some warnings accompanied with the, the things that avoid big risks. And that it is... It, it's not a GPS device, but I think it's in the family in two respects. First, it is trying to help you get to your preferred destination. So I want the GPS to writ large. And also it allows you to ignore its advice if you don't like what it's telling you. So if you say, you know, if you learn that there's some food that has a ton of sugar and salt and you learn that and you think the government thinks that you probably don't want that. You think, yes, I do, because I really love salty caramel candy, which I give as an example because I had some within the last, okay, three hours recently. And the, to, to have that, is people in a free country allowed to have that? That's fine, like a GPS device. A default rule, if it automatically enrolls people in something, let's say it's a savings program, it ought to be uh, fixated on whether the chooser is being helped by reference to the chooser's own views about what his or her best destination is. So if you automatically enroll people in a savings program that is you know, going to make their take-home pay go down to the floor or going to put them in investments that are going to tank, then you're manipulating people and, and harming them. So anything that goes into the universe of manipulation should be off limits. We need a definition of manipulation. If it's covert or not transparent, then I would consider it not a nudge. And if that's kind of argument by by definition, then that's not a good thing to do. Argument by definition, <laughs> I consider it a bad nudge. I don't like that. Yeah. You know, because you're talking about issues of wide public policy. I not, you know, you're sort of reconciling something between. An individual's desire to reach a particular destination and what's good for them. and But if you're talking about government policy, presumably or social behaviour, you're, you're also trying to produce results at scale. Do the two go seamlessly together or is there a disjunction? Well, th they can. So if you have, uh, let's say, children being automatically enrolled in a program by which they get free meals if they're poor, they can opt out, but they don't have to apply. They're automatically in. That is a, a nudge at scale. In the United States, there's a program like that that in a, in a bad year has 9 million participants. That's really scaling. 
or you can have automatic enrollment in savings programs and the number of euros or dollars in those programs, it's really high. We're talking you know, many, many millions of dollars. Or you can have a program, I think it is like a GPS device, that's trying to help credit card users not to incur late fees and overuse fees. And there is a program that has a lot of nudges in it in, in my country, and that's saving consumers over $9 billion a year. So that's really scaling. Now, it may be that, and all of these programs are designed to help choosers, the three I gave, there may be some uh, nudges that are designed to help third parties. Like you could have information for consumers about the environmental effects of what they do, or you could have automatic enrollment, and many companies do this in Germany in green energy, where you can opt out if it's too expensive. And those aren't fundamentally designed to protect the consumers, they're protect the users. And some people think those are not enough, and that's probably right. We're not going to solve our environmental problems through nudges, but they're contributors to solutions. Some people think they're manipulative, and that's that's completely fair to discuss. I mean, one of the concerns that the book raises, you talk about counter nudges from, as it were, private vested interest. Do behavioral insights and nudges do you see them as operating differently when operated by private corporations as by government? Because, I mean, one of the things that's sort of slightly scary is you think the people who have the most money to pour into behavioral insight, the most data with which to use it and to test it, are private. You know, they're things like the sort of, you know, Google's privacy policies, Facebook's, you know. I mean, how do you fight back. Do you think, do you think this, we, we can have a bit too much okay. behavioral insight? Okay, great. So uh, you could think that increasing knowledge about what moves behavior is on net bad because the people who can exploit those knowledge, that knowledge will be self-interested and hurt consumers. There's actually a whole book written about this problem by two Nobel Prize winners, Robert Schiller and George Akerlof. It's called Fishing for Fools, PH, and it's about behavioral manipulation by the private sector. Definitely a problem. There are a couple things to say about it. One is, and this is a big surprise to me since 2008, the explosion, and that is the right word, of the use of behavioral science for good by the private sector, it's stunning. So financial institutions are doing a lot to try to help people to avoid uh, silly choices or harmful choices by giving them reminders and warnings that you know, you're about to do something or you're sure you want to, or by making it, introducing a little sludge before they do the thing that is, meaning uh, friction before they do the bad thing, or by defaulting them into programs that are in their interest. There are companies all, all over the world and actually, there are awards called Nudging for Good Awards being given for... <laughs> that's a nudge. That's, it's, a, it's a second-order nudge, a meta-nudge, that uh, is meant to encourage what would happen already, where the idea is to try to help consumers to make healthier, healthier choices, but if they don't want to, they don't have to. So there's a lot of private sector great things happening. On, uh, on the, to my surprise, not that I'm um, a big fan, above of the financial sector. I think they do great things, but I'm surprised at the extent to which they've been using behavioral science for good. And also, this is true of food. In the UK, the efforts by supermarkets and grocery stores to try to help consumers to make good choices, and I've worked with some of them, not by 
telling consumers you must do this or banning anything, but by, for example, putting the uh, healthier foods at the checkout counter rather than the less healthy ones. That's private. They said it doesn't work with bread. I was fascinated by that. That's a great study. Yeah, yeah. People like white bread, even if it's high calorie, and you can hide it and they're still going to go get it. And that's great because that's what people want. Uh, And, you know, unless it were, you know, really awful, in which case it wouldn't be great. It's just not as good as whole wheat bread in terms of health, but it's more delicious. And, you know, go for it, people. So the private sector, this is basically saying that it's often possible to do well by doing good. Sometimes you can do better economically by doing good. Sometimes you do less well, but you don't do a lot less well by doing good. And some companies are making that trade-off. So where we see behavioral science being used in the interest of people, that's something you're very excited about. Where we see fishing for fools, there's a, a fair question whether either consumer responses through complaints and organization or government responses through something like prohibitions on deception and manipulation should come into play. And those the, those are reasonable discussions to have. Yeah. I mean, how, how trusting and optimistic are you that the market will sort it out in a way? I'm torn because I was at the University of Chicago for many years, and University of Chicago blood. <laughs> I, I bleed University of Chicago maroon, and uh, there we're very enthusiastic about free markets. But on the other hand, the behavioral science revolution has revealed that sometimes the market punishes behavior that does not exploit people's behavioral biases. So if people are, let's say, focused on today and not tomorrow, it's called present bias, or if they are optimistically biased, as most people are, that's generally a good thing, but it can mean that people won't take precautions against bad things. You can get people to make gambles that aren't in their interest or to ignore their long-term self-interest. And if you don't do those things, if you're a private company, if you don't exploit present bias and optimistic bias, you might go out of business because your competitors are. And that's called the fishing equilibrium by some uh, people who study this stuff, and it's, it's fair. So basically, I guess I think that markets are, by and large, a force for good. To have a government role in forbidding deception is extremely important because sometimes deception is remunerative. And it's a frontiers issue. But when, there, is, there is also, yeah. I mean, not just outright deception, obviously, which we could all disagree, but surely some of what you call you know, choice architecture yes. is, is more subtly what's, yes. what's an operation. So, okay, so th- this is a real frontiers issue. So whether there should be a kind of newish category called manipulation, which is the use of choice architecture to harm consumers, that government should be regulating, I'm, I'm not extremely excited about adding new grounds for government regulation. I'll plant a Chicago flag in the ground. But this is a, a quite fair point. Now, if there's a company that is selling, let's say, cinnamon rolls, and it makes it so that when you go in, you smell the cinnamon rolls kind of immediately, and that nudges you to buy the cinnamon rolls, I think it would be pretty aggressive to say, you can't do that. Life is made better by 
cinnamon rolls and the smell of cinnamon rolls for the <laughs> government to say that's uh, illegitimate choice, ar- ar- choice architecture, not so good. But you could imagine forms of manipulation where there's a counter nudge, let's say, that exploits people's uh, special uh, antagonism to losses. People don't like losses from the status quo. So if you say you can't afford not to buy this, that's using loss aversion. I don't think the government should stop that. But if you're trying to get someone, let's say, to benefit, so to speak, from some service where you're going to be a big economic loser and the and the private actor says you can't afford not to do this or think of all the money you lose if you don't do this and it's not quite deceptive but it's manipulative, it's fair to think that maybe there ought to be a law. I just want to ask you a little bit to take us back to present politics. You talk towards the end of the book of partyism, which I guess is a sort of extremely ramped up version of the group polarization applied to American politics at the moment and it's you know we're just sitting next door to Westminster where partyism's going complete bananas in British politics do you see some sort of equilibrium returning or do you see a way because partyism as you correctly I think right produces the kind of institutional gridlock that we've seen in the American yeah. Congress I think it's a pretty grave problem and it doesn't have an easy corrective. So we know now that many American parents would be very upset if their child married someone of a different political party. They'd be fine if someone... I guess he's coming to dinner all over again. <laughs> yes. So the Americans, they you know, marry someone of a different skin color, that's fine. But please don't marry someone of a different political party. I did a national survey a few years ago testing whether people are more would be more upset if their kids married someone of a different political party than if their kid married someone of the same sex. And I didn't quite find that, but it may be today... We're, we're, we're getting there, that same-sex marriage is much more approved, and I'm for that, so I think that's a good development. It's kind of stunning if that's more approved than cross-party marriages. And if people are generally very unhappy automatically, a kind of revulsion against people of a different political view, then that will make governance really difficult because politicians are, of course, responsive to their constituents. It is a serious problem. There are two things that can be done to address it. One is to allow a lot of space for people to make judgments that have nothing to do with who's up and who's down politically. And the civil service, the extremely superb civil service in the UK is kind of a world model for that. And every day people are benefiting from it, even if it's not visible. That's that's one route. The other route is for politicians to think they, they just have to model something that involves, what's the right word? Tolerance would be not the right word, but receptivity. Well, here's to that coming back. (laughs) Sunstein, thank you for your time. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed that book's podcast. If you did, I very much hope that you'll subscribe to us on your podcast provider. And if you liked it, especially if you liked it, please rate and review it very favourably indeed. We also have a special offer. We can provide a £20 John Lewis voucher if you subscribe to 12 issues of the magazine for just £12. So that's practically an £8 bribe to read The Wonderful Spectator for 12 weeks running. And you just need to go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. 